This poet has been writing poetry from chapter 40 to chapter 55 in a book we call Second Isaiah. If you listen to the images in the poem, they're just striking, they're beautiful, they're, they're picturesque. When I listen to this poem, it takes me back to standing out in the rain, to twirling around in the rain and stomping around in puddles, to sticking our tongues out and letting the snowflakes hit your tongue, to playing double dutch or basketball near the fire hydrant and the water gets open and you run in there and get soaking wet to quench your thirst, washing away salt and fatigue. God's people are thirsty, and the poet knows this. They're not thirsty because they, they haven't been drinking. They have been drinking, drinking deeply from the waters of suffering and deportation, drinking deeply from the waters of fear and annihilation. For two generations, 70 years, the elite of Judah have been exiled from their homeland, away from the rivers that snake lazily through Jerusalem, the Jordan, the Kishon, the Lachish, the Ayalon, away from the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee, the Red Sea, and the Mediterranean, away from groves of olive trees and pomegranates, away from the desert in the south and the snow-capped mountains in the north, two generations in Babylon where they wept, the psalmist says, remembering Zion. How can we sing King Alpha's song in a strange land? They wept, they married, they built houses, they tilled the soil. They told stories to their children and grandchildren. This is the God of our ancestors, the God of Israel. They told stories about God's relationship to the people, about the city of peace, Jerusalem, in all its glory. And then in about 538 BCE, Babylon was conquered once again, this time by the Persian king Cyrus, who allowed the people whom the Babylonians had exiled to actually return to their home. In fact, in many cases, Cyrus bought their ticket home. Look, these people didn't want to be in Babylon, not at first. They were the brightest and the best back home, the artisans, the craftsmen, the painters, the bricklayers. They missed their houses, they missed their cousins, they missed their servants, they missed their stuff. But they survived in Babylon. Some of them even thrived in Babylon. They built new houses in Babylon, got married, got some new cousins, developed some new habits, got some new stuff in Babylon. They became accustomed to Babylon, acculturated in Babylon. The ways of Babylon became their ways. Back home, Post-war, it was a little more than a settlement after the battles that made them spoils of war, beat up shabby in ruins. Those who would have returned would have had to start over, build new foundations, new aqueducts, new infrastructure, new houses, new walls. Many of the fields around Jerusalem had just gone whack, crazy. They would have had to begin again. And for this generation who didn't know Israel, they were like, eh, maybe we don't need to go home. Maybe it's I here in Babylon. 
So much of Isaiah 40 to 55 is like a travel log, like an advertisement. Come back home to Jerusalem. Come back home to olive trees and the rivers. You know your land's been ravaged, but come home anyway. Come to the water. You heard Calisto read so beautifully. Come to the water. Those who are thirsty, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. You don't even need money. That's how good God's going to be. Just come. Come home. Come to the overflowing blessings of God. Come resettle. Come start over. Come get close to God. Make your home in God once again. Come to the fructifying waters, to God's providence, God's blessings. Come and listen to Yahweh and hear what God has to say. And who's invited? Not everybody. But the ones who are thirsty are invited. Those who truly thirst and truly hunger for God and the ways of God They're invited to come and do more than drink from the waters. They're invited to come and eat, feast on the word of God, to seek God and find God while God is available. Come. Come to the waters, those who thirst. Lent is an invitation to come to the waters. Lent is an invitation actually to thirst, for living waters, to thirst for the love relationship that is the one God wants with us, the one God desires with us, to thirst for justice for those on the margins, to thirst for the healing of our souls, the recreating and rewiring of our lives, to thirst for an eradication of the malignancy and violence and hatred that can fester in dry places. The foul poison that kills everything around it. This poem is read during Lent as an invitation to come get wet with God. To come home. But it's easy to be comfortable in Babylon. It just is to be out there exiled, to take on the texture, the tone, the personality of empire, to consume the culture of empire, to watch empire on television, to flip through it on our phones. Oh, that was funny. I didn't even know that. I wrote that. All the empires, not just that show. (laughs) To scroll through on our phones to empire, to be acculturated, brainwashed by the shiny, sparkly, seductive pull of empire. We sit behind our phones and it's a menacing man kicks an old woman in the face on the subway, recording it. Lord have mercy, but not getting up to stop it. Come on now. We're afraid to get involved because empires seem so powerful. We listen as a leader brags about grabbing women by their genitals, and we elect him anyway, as he encourages his followers to punch somebody in the head and draws comparisons between neo-Nazis and peaceful protesters. We elected him 
because empire is a powerful pull. We watch as he thumps his chest and thumbs his nose at calls to save the earth, to give sanctuary to the immigrant, to love the LGBTQ folk, to champion fair wages and economic justice for all. We listen and we know we're in Babylon. But Babylon can feel comfortable. We know there's a putrid, rotting core in the center of our democracy, and we complain about it at dinner with our friends. But Babylon is familiar now. We're annoyed, we're assaulted, we're alarmed by empire. But it's kind of familiar, and we're not supposed to get political because we're a church. Amen. So we're in it. Up in empire. Up to our necks in empire. We're thirsty for the living waters that'll satisfy, that will heal. We are desperately thirsty, but we drink Kool-Aid instead of the living water. By the way, I loved me some Kool-Aid when I was little. Just to be clear, grape especially. But that blue, sugary, funky stuff is not good for you. It's not nutritious. The one we elected says, I'm Christian, and bows his head and prays. And the ones who don't want to confront empire say, he's anointed by God, called by God to be our leader. And we swallow the Kool-Aid, some of us. We force it down because it's too scary to tell the truth. The Kool-Aid, in fact, is fecal material, and it stinks because it's crap. And crap stinks. Somebody say amen. And when we hold our nose and we down it quickly, and it begins to kill us from the inside out, we wonder what is wrong with us. I'm talking emotionally, physically, what's wrong with us? A diet of funky Kool-Aid is not good for you. The New Zealand killer called Donald Trump a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose. In response to that, Trump was asked if he thought the white nationalists were a growing threat around the world. And he replied, God, I wish I could do a good Trump accent. I, I, I don't really. I think it's a small group of people that have very, 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 very serious problems. It's certainly a terrible thing. In a recent piece in Sojourners, Jim Wallace said, Donald Trump has proved his identification with white nationalizing, from his demonizing of immigrants to his making of anti-immigrant policies to deciding to make his midterm election strategy about walls and Muslim bans, to his expressed hostility and falsehoods toward the, the Muslim religion. And this, he says, more sharply, we're not going to like this quote, in a spirit of Christian love and accountability, we must tell all Christians who still publicly or privately support President Trump, your support can no longer be justified by the appointment of federal judges. It can no longer be justified by his change of mind and politically convenient alliance with your Christian opposition to abortion. I said you weren't going to like it. It's not justified by his alliance with your disavowing same-sex marriage. It's not justified by 
His strong advocacy of religious liberty for Christians, but not for Muslims and Jews. In fact, that's hypocrisy. And it is certainly not justified by Donald Trump's tax policies that make the richest people in America even richer. You can no longer look away from his consistent, amoral, personal, and public behavior. To that I say, you better preach, Jim. You better preach. America has been deported to Babylon when white supremacist ideologies masquerade as Christianity and 50 souls are killed in New Zealand, 11 in Pittsburgh, nine in Charlottesville, six in Oak Creek. White supremacy is non-discriminating in where it will point hatred and people die because we export that junk all around the globe. America has been deported to Babylon, middle family. And I think we have a really important job to do, which is to call America back home to love. To call America back home to love. Home to a diverse democracy in which all of us can thrive where we can live and work and love and play and pray without fear of being killed because we don't look, look like a straight white man. Somebody say amen. Come home to love, to where Mama Earth is protected from the way we treat her like a toilet. Come home to healing and courage. Come home to life, to recognize that God speaks more than one language. That God, she's multivocal. <laughs> that she speaks Jewishness and Islam, and she speaks Buddhism and Baha'i, and she speaks Christian, and she speaks nature. She is not bound by our creeds to get people in relationship with her. I think our job, Middle, is to call people back to love that is living water, love that heals, to keep speaking truth to power, to keep preaching it, teaching it, socializing it, to teach our children to be ambassadors for a world that is free of hatred and full of love. And so, how will we do this? I think we have to march and protest and stand in the gap until our feet are tired and our legs cramp. We can't just do church in here. <laughs> because we know what time it is. We've got to get out there in the world and use every means we have in our power to change the story. Those of us who write have to write. Those of us who act have to act. Those of us who sing have to sing songs of love. Those of us who do media have to do media in the name of love. We've got to use all of our stuff our social media, our Twitter handles, our Facebook and Instagram, every place we have an opportunity to change the story, to change the story. Two, when they shot up New Zealand, the prime minister banned the, war banned the weapons. What? Come on. We are going to have up on the website today 
a tweet, tweet and a Facebook post for you to copy and mimic. Can we do a t- little Twitter storm to our electives? Can we ban, do you need an assault weapon to kill a deer? That's just crap. So we've got to ban these weapons now. Say that with me. Ban these weapons now. Three, we will participate in the political process as though it is a part of our faith because it is. We're not sitting around waiting for the second coming of Jesus or some, some stuff to rescue us and de- deport us out of a crazy world. We've got to make heaven on earth right now. And the only way that we're going to do that is to be political, as in be for the people, register to vote, listen to the campaign speeches, find the candidate that you love, bless the candidate you love, make a donation to the candidate you love, register other people to vote, tell the story, tell the story. I'm not going to tell you who your candidate is, but you need to know who your candidate is and do some work to make sure that the nation begins to look like the reign of God right now. Amen? And then I think finally, I, I think we... I mean, I don't know. I worked for, I worked every hour this weekend. Oops. I worked every hour this weekend except for two. I I just couldn't put my phone down. I couldn't put my computer down. I couldn't. I'm like a fiend right in here for love and justice. And I don't think there's any place on the planet that is a better one-shot stop against white supremacy than this place. I just don't think so. If it is, join that movement (laughs) and tell me about it so I can too. But this one right here, this multi-everything band of revolutionary lovers, I'm throwing down here. My time, my talent, and my ties. Here because it gets it done. And I'm inviting you, if you're sitting on the sidelines and kind of thinking middle church is kind of cute and quaint and lovely, and you love the Aretha Franklin music, to suit up and get off the sidelines and get in the game. Because every human being is needed in the game. All of your gifts, all of your talents, everything you have to spare to defeat the white nationalist, white supremacist, white power, crazy national movement, international movement that is going to sock our world to hell. It's urgent, and I feel desperate. I feel, I feel like, God, we don't have time to waste. And so I'm inviting you, if you feel any of that, to join me and our team in this movement for love and justice that is called Middle Church. Don't wait. Do it today. We have to call our nation to come home to love. Come home to love. Come home to love. Amen.